0: Good morning, good morning. How are you? Welcome to worship. Um, My name, if you haven't met me, is Ray Medina. I'm a pastoral intern here and will be for a season. Um, It's been a really rich season thus far. I've only been here about a month, and already I've been involved in conversations around sticky faith and conversations around common language, the goal of the spiritual life, and conversations on session involving the history of Trinity, and it's been, it's been very rich. i have loved to get to know some of you, and hoping that the relationships deepen, as, you know, I'm still learning your name, so <laughs> this morning I nailed about five, so I'm feeling like a little relational high right now. Um, but yeah, uh, it's I a little bit about me, got the family. This is my wife, Janine, sitting in the front, and she's got a four-month-old in her lap. His name is Jaden, and he's the happiest baby I know right now, which is very key to our our, our household sanity because um, we have a two-year-old also in the nursery he's a little tired so he might join us at some point point. and I'm working full-time at First, Pres- Pres- First Presbyterian Burlingame which is a little north as the youth director so I'm used to talking to high school and middle school kids so if my youthfulness comes out a little bit this morning I don't know if I'd apologize or if it's just gonna be fun I hope it's the latter right so um, why don't we pray to get started and we'll talk about the story of David. God of truth, we believe that you have not only spoken, but that you continue to speak. Reveal your word for all of us and for each of us on this day. Open our hearts to receive it. Enlighten our minds to fathom it. Direct our souls to treasure it. By your Holy Spirit, may the reading and interpretation of this text be for us the very word of God. In the name of Christ Jesus, amen. Well, had you been on had you been in Southern California a week ago and had you been walking down the sandy beach of Laguna and had you looked up at about Anita Street there's a giant staircase and on the top of that staircase was a whole big pile of stuff. Like I'm talking you name it. Like there was a pack and play, there was a bunch of floaty contraptions, there was a double stroller there was towels. There was bags. There was everything that we had unpacked from the back of our SUV because we were on a family road trip. <laughs> and it was, a, that's not the SUV that we were driving, but that is one that I saw on Google that I was like, wow, that pretty much sums it up. Kind of a kind of mess, kind of the, you know, but for me it wasn't a mess, FYI. For me it was like it was my Tetris moment actualized. For me to fit all that stuff in there, was, it was my glory, right? That was what I did. That was what I did. In fact, I think the majority of that vacation was take that stuff out and put it back in. Um, which, you know, that goes to show you, like, it's not really vacation we figured out with two children. But anyways, that aside, it was my puzzle perfected. And for, even though it was a mess, and you would have noted from that sandy beach that it was a complete mess. It was our mess, <laughs> and it was, for us, an opportunity, a highly invested opportunity for a new beginning. Not necessarily a new beginning like we're moving or anything, but vacations can kind of do that. They can offer you perspective, and they can introduce you to potentially things that are going on in life that uh, lead you to the idea that, hey, you know, this is a new beginning for us. This is a, new, this is a time to talk about who we are as a family and, and how to how to play together well and that kind of thing. So... That was our mess, and I wonder um, if you had a picture. In fact, that would be kind of fun to do is to take, for each of us, to have pictures of messes in our house. It could be, could be your room. It could be your, could be your pantry. If it were mine, if it were a picture of my mess, my real mess, at home, it would be my laundry basket, right? Where, like, in order to find a matching pair of socks— At 6 a.m. it feels like a search and rescue mission into the depths of cottony chaos, right? One that it seems to take a lot longer than it should. But that's, that's organizational messes. And I'm sure you relate to organizational messes. And if you want to play this game over the next few weeks that we do this series, I think it'd be fun if you brought a picture and we projected your organizational mess. Up here, I think that'd be really fun. I don't know if you want to play along, but if you wanted to, if you're on social media, you want to email Mary. I'd love to have a picture of your mess if you'd be so forthcoming. It's it's difficult to show each other our messes, right? Even like when people come over, we're like, we got to clean up, and that means like the emergency shove all the messes to where the people can't see the messes. But aside from organizational messes, there's, there's other types of messes that we're involved in, right? Um, there's family messes. And they might involve a son or a daughter, or a mom or a dad, or a brother or a sister or a cousin. And those, those can get messy in a different kind of way. Or, or relational messes in general, right? something like, uh, you know, her best friend or that friend that you used to have who now posted that thing on Instagram, which was not very nice, by the way. And you don't really know how to call this person a friend anyways because, wow, even though you seem, it seemed like you knew him, you're not so sure anymore, right? Distance, relational messes, or, or maybe it's an educational mess. Maybe it's the fact that the grading scale is unfair, or, or that you just don't know how you're going to keep your focus for 30 seconds more doing homework. Or or vocational mess. You don't know your, your next step in life. You work in a high-anxiety work environment. You have unreasonable expectations placed upon you. All these different types of messes that are not as funny, more sobering. When we think about how, how messy life can be. And, and we get this. This is not something that I have to stand up here and tell you, right? I saw a bumper sticker on this same road trip, and all it said was, plan to improvise. And I was like, yeah. <laughs> because why? Because life is messy, and, and we know it. Like, we get that. But here's the thing, at least in my view and sometimes in my experience and based on conversations I have, a lot of people don't like their life with God to be messy, In fact, a lot of people, self-included, kind of would prefer a detached and sanitized faith life. What I mean by that is detached in the sense that it's not as necessarily involved with all our messes, the family, the educational, the vocational, the psychological mess, and, and it's sanitized. In other words, there's places where that happens that are kind of free, like here, for instance, even, free from all the, you know, the messiness of life. So all the grit. If you were to ask a, someone from the millennial generation in the past decade, right, what's the goal of the Christian life? If you were to ask them, um, this is a huge study, 2004, the National Study of Youth and Religion. Right? It's the largest study of its kind ever. And, and what they found asking spiritual youth, asking people involved in church, Christians, Kids, what's the goal of the Christian life? Uh, most of them landed on this phrase, be nice and be happy. And there's nothing wrong with niceness and there's nothing wrong with happiness. Surely that's, that's part of it. But when it comes to the biblical story, it seems like the death, ministry, resurrection, life of Jesus has more heft than that. And it's not just a millennial thing, see, because the book came out later, Kendra Greasy Dean of Princeton wrote it, and she said that her findings after taking this research, the book was called Almost Christian, has suggested that teens this is an isolated generational thing. Teens are just articulating what their parents believe and embody about the Christian life. Be nice, be happy. Detached, sanitized. Huh? A little, like, you know, God's there. He's out there. But as far as involved in, in the real, because we get the fact that life is messy. But we don't always, self-included, right? We don't always understand that God, God's somehow involved in the mess. And when we do say God's involved in the mess, it's usually uh, vague generalisms. Uh, you, know, you know, God's helping me through this or, or something like that. And so when we read the story of David, Man, it's, it's, a, it's a refreshing corrective because from the get-go, David's story is extremely messy. There is no doubt about it. Now, if you know anything about David, you probably know. You probably picture him as a giant slaying hero or perhaps the warrior poet, David, or perhaps the king who is just full of passion, David. Or if you like me, you remember David's big fall. Right, You you remember what that was all about, and you're you're trying to square that with the fact that the Scripture calls David a man after God's own heart. But from the get-go, David's story is extremely complicated, and he's thrust into a highly volatile cultural situation from the get-go. I'm going to go ahead and read the text. This is how the David story opens. It's in 1 Samuel 16. So we're 16 chapters into Samuel's career. And, and here it is. This is the anointing of David, or David anointed as king. The text reads as follows. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul? I have rejected him from being king over Israel. Fill your horn with oil and set out. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite. For I have provided for myself a king among his sons. He said, peaceably, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Sanctify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he sanctified Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, surely, surely the Lord's anointed is now before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord does not see as mortals see. They look on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. He said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by, and he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen any of these. Samuel said to Jesse, "Are, are all your sons here? And he said, well, there remains the youngest, but he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and bring him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. He sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and beautiful, had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, rise and anoint him, for this is the one. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. Samuel then set out and went to Ramah. This is the word of the Lord. You know, David's story really doesn't start with David at all. It starts with this guy, Samuel. And man, if you know Samuel, Samuel's this, this is the same Samuel who, by the way, I don't know if you remember the story. Samuel, Samuel, yes, Eli? He goes to Eli. You call? No, I didn't call. Go back to bed, kid. the like, all right. Samuel Samuel, he figures out that the one calling him is, is not Eli, it's it's God. This is this is this guy's got a pretty cool story, this Samuel guy. And yet, right now, at this particular season in his life, hey, he's an emotional wreck. <laughs> I mean, he's grieving, grieving over the fact that Israel's King Project has been a disaster. Right? And he's been he's been like the main initiator of this. He's been dealing with God about this project, and here he is grieving over the fact, and God sends him on this king errand, and he's, he's scared to death, so this, this same kid who heard God's voice and has this trusting spirit is, <laughs> he's all over the place, and it's, it's kind of funny, I mean, I read this story, and it's kind of funny that here's this renowned prophet, and he goes and makes these really rookie judgment calls, did you catch that? He goes before Eliab, right, who's the first of Jesse's sons, and he's like, this guy's tall? Saul is tall. Must be king. Right here. I'm looking at him. And God's like, no, no, don't. It's not about his stature. He goes to the next kid. Abinadab, Abinadab. Hmm. That sounds good. Say it three times fast. It gives you the shivers. Mufasa. Mm. <laughs> I mean, what? Like, like, really? Like this this is, <laughs> this is how you're thinking about the next king? I mean, it just seems so. It seems so out of place for a, a ministry veteran to be making these really shallow judgment calls. This is, this is the messiness of Samuel right here. I mean, he's scared. He's an emotional wreck. He's not very discerning in the moment. And, and that's how the David story starts is with this guy. And, and then there's David. I mean, really all we know about this guy he's, he's, is he's, he is overlooked. Right? He's this overlooked kid who's kind of got this Cinderella role. Like, go, go tend the sheep, dude. Like, something's going down right, at the house today. Go, go make sure they're okay, all right, David? We have no idea how old David is. Could have been a teenager. Could have been 12, for all we know. But here he is, this overlooked kid, and, and up until that point in the story, nothing's, nothing's really happened, right? It's just, there's a mess. Who knows what David was doing, right? Like, out in the field. He might have been like, dude, Eliab, hmm, jerk, sent me to send, tend the sheep, like, man, what's up with that, God? Like, why? Why am I I unimportant? I'm gonna write a song about it. (laughs) Why, oh Lord? Why? I know you're good, you're good, you're cool, but seriously, why? Who knows what David's process was like, right? And then God's initiative is really interesting here because God subverts a cultural norms, firstborn. Not the first time he's done that, by the way. Jacob, Esau, Cain, Abel, Joseph, his brothers. But God subverts the cultural norm in the ancient Near East and says, I'm not choosing the oldest. I'm choosing the youngest. Thank you very much. This unprepared, disheveled kid comes up and gets called and equipped to be a central figure in the God story. And that's that's the amazing part of the moment here, is that this kid who's overlooked and unimportant, God says, you now anoint him, and right then and there, David's life has changed, although it really hasn't changed that much. I mean, like a month later, he's a a harp, he's a harpist for Saul, and then two months after that or three months after that, he's running for his life, so who knows what he was thinking about this moment as it related to his future, but it changed things. And let me suggest this morning that it changes things for us because life is messy and as David's story demonstrates, the biblical narrative is messy. So you have this, you have this prophet who's making rookie judgment calls. He's an emotional mess. You have this, this overlooked kid and that, that's precisely the kind of grit with which God is involved. It's precisely the stuff that makes God who He is and the story what it is, and our involvement in it that much, that much more real, right? That much because God is involved in our grit, right? And that, that's really, that's really where, where I land with this stuff, and that's the healthy reminder for me, is that with all my my mess goes deep, right? My mess goes deep. My, I know yours does too, and with all the psychological and emotional and relational and educational and vocational. Stuff that happens in life, God is the God of the grit, like involved getting hands and feet dirty. If you want to go and talk about the story later, the incarnation, getting hands and feet dirty and pierced, right? Like that's how involved God is in the human experience. And it's not like that's a Christian idea, that's the whole Bible idea, right? That's the biblical story. And so it's for me, it's this daily reminder. It's this, God, you're not detached. Like, I'm not going to let my mess keep me from you, right? Because you're already involved, hello, at a heart level. (laughs) You know the thoughts and intentions. You're weighing things at a level that no human being can. So you already get it. So I'm not going to let my mess keep me from you, my thing at work, which is hard to talk about, by the way, that relationship that I'm in. That's difficult stuff. Even bringing it up to God feels Jarring, and yet that's precisely the kind of integration that makes, healthy, that makes for healthy spirituality, right? Not a detached kind of faith and not a sanitized faith where we only get close to God when all the pieces are put together, and when all the right things are in place, and when I'm feeling good about myself. I don't have to clean up my act to get and bring to God who I am. I can bring my whole self, psychological, emotional, educational, sexual, you, you name it. It's all there. It's all open anyways, so, really, what I, what I would want for us, for you, for me, is that we, we learn, that we start this process, this messy beginning of integrating. Because even, even something as simple as packing the back of an SUV, right, even that is part of the fabric with which God is involved and part of the fabric with which God is calling and equipping us and you and me Something so simple. If we could only figure out that so many of the things in our lives are dripping with divine meaning. So many of the things in our life have potential to call us into this story, this God story. This this big, like way bigger than us. Way bigger. It's not like God doesn't care about our story. He knows the number of hairs on our head. But bigger story than our story. Right? If only we could like Get that, that we're involved. And that things like family vacations are part of the fabric, part of the grit, part of the dirt with which God is, is working to call and equip us. I love that last verse in the text. It said, and it reads in a, in a Jewish transcription of the scriptures, it reads that the Holy Spirit gripped David. And I, I, that's, that's what I would want for you and for me this week, is that in the mess, not when things are sanitized and not when we would like it, but within the mess— within the emotion, within the relationship, we can begin to get gripped by this reality, right? That God's, God's in there, right? Hands pierced, God's in there. And calling us potentially ready to pour out his spirit into us and over us and invite us into what will probably be a very messy beginning. Let's pray. God, we we thank you that you're not far off, that you're imminent. And that that changes who we are and how we do life. And that life with you isn't about getting things perfect. It's about inviting you in to what's already happening. So transform us and change us. Indeed, relieve relieve us of some of these messes, but also help us to know that you get it and that you're for us. You know our hearts. You've weighed the balances, and we can invite you in we can integrate. God, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.